Hey, this is Tyler Olson. The show is Money Mediator. Uh, today, we're talking about career development and career transition. And uh, I'm grateful to have Dr. Sacharitha Bowers with me today. Uh, it's really nice to have you and, and be able to talk about this. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. Truly, it's an honor. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you were willing to take some time to talk with me because, um, and I, I just want to give a little bit of the genesis of this idea. As I interact with med students and residents and attendings in the medical field, um, I see a lot of people, I see the attitude where they feel like they're boxed in to some degree um, from a career standpoint. And, um, and so my, you know, my thoughts went to like, well, where does career development come in? If a transition needs to be made, how, how and, and when is the right time to do that? And like, how can people have confidence in that? And then when I saw you talking about some of the things that you were doing in your career, um, you seemed very optimistic, like you had a plan, like you had thought about it, and that you were having, like you, you demonstrated a very fulfilled look. Uh, and so that's why I wanted to talk with you today. <laughs> so I'm really I appreciate you. that. Um, but like, if you don't mind, could we just start to get a little bit more background on like on, on your own, uh, your own schooling and career? Where, where did you go to school? So I, I did my grade school and high school uh, in central Illinois. Uh, I came here as an immigrant from India when I was four years old. And my first teacher was actually my mom. She was my, my, my I guess, the equivalent of preschool. Um, that's a little fun fact about me. Um, my mom always wanted to be a teacher, but wasn't encouraged to pursue career uh, as a woman in India. So um, her, her one job as a teacher was to be uh, the preschool teacher, which I was one of her students. So that's kind of cool. Um, cool. <laughs> but uh, I grew up, uh, we immigrated here um, in 1981. And then um, I grew up in, in a small town uh, for a few years in central, rural central Illinois and did some grade school there. And then we moved to Bloomington, uh, Illinois for the Indian community that was growing there. And um, I, I did my grade school there, my high school there. And then I went to college at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign um, and I majored in psychology there. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to medical school or go into counseling and grad school in psychology. So I took a year off and and, uh, and did some triage counseling uh, work and then decided I did indeed want to go to medical school. So then I went to applied to medical school and uh, went to medical school at, at SIU School of Medicine, which is based in Carbondale for its first year. And then the, the latter three years are here in Springfield. And um, after that, uh, I did residency education at, at, at SIU as well here in Springfield in dermatology. Uh, so that's that. That's sort of the, the summary of my educational background. Um, yeah, that is that's really. I mean, first of all, like the 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 homeschooling factor that really, like from you know, you're talking about your mother, that is very um, actually dear to me because you know we have a young child and we're even considering that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really great. It seems like education was something that was considered important in your family from a young age? It, it, it was, it is still, of course. And my parents never pressured me about marriage or, you know, anything, you know, having kids or anything like that. 
it was always about getting an education, but that's also part of the South Asian culture. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a darker side to that too. You know, there's a, there's a significant pressure sometimes in, in some South Asian cultures and in some households, I don't want to generalize, but there can be a pressure to perform academically and, and to excel. Um, and consequently, um, growing up, I put all my, all my effort into academics and little into sports um, or other extracurricular activities. So I felt like there was a lot of development that I didn't have that my peers had um, that I think ultimately probably impacted my later career trajectory because all of those skills that you develop in those activities, uh, whether it's teamwork or, or confidence building, which is a big one, um, ultimately impact your career trajectory. So if, if you're very unidimensional like me and I just had academics, I didn't have a lot of confidence, even though I, I was a great student. Um, and that's definitely something that's impacted me in my career. Yeah. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that aspect of things. You know, I mean, like, you know, teamwork, team sports, things of that nature. Um, they're... I remember in school, they're very, at least in my school, they were very separate, like very different mindsets at the time. And it's almost like it was actually hard to find people that did both. It seems like they're both really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So you went into medical school and so, okay, so you're in medical school and then you graduate, you matched and you are in residency. Um, during your training, like, especially during risen, did, did you do a fellowship as well? Um, I did, I did not do a fellowship. No. Okay. So like during residency, as you were like gearing up for employment opportunities, you know, you're looking toward that goalpost, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, for, you know, attending positions, what factors were guiding your choices at that time? Um, there were a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, I will just backtrack. Um, I did apply to dermatology, but I actually did not match my first time. And uh, I did a research fellowship for one year, which was a year of employment, really, after I graduated medical school. And I moved up to Minnesota and I did a year in clinical research and I used it to enhance my application to reapply. So when I reapplied, I ended up matching back at my home program, which was great. Um, and it was good to come back. Mm -hmm. um, my husband at the time, you know, because we'd had that year, we got married right after medical school graduation. And then he got a job in, in Chicago where he had been living um, after grad school. And I moved down to Springfield after my year of research. And we had decided mutually to not spend my entire residency apart as a married couple. So we spent the first year apart when I was in Minnesota, but then he left his job in Chicago, which was a good one, and moved down to Springfield so that we could be together and start our married life. Um, this is relevant in my career trajectory because if you are uh, in, a, in a relationship, you know, whatever the state of that relationship may be, if you are in a relationship with a significant other, whether it's a spouse or, or you know, someone else, um, sometimes your career trajectory is influenced by the trajectory of your partner. And um, he had to put his career on hold when he moved down to Springfield. His field of specialty is forest, uh, is, is within forestry. It's sustainability and green building. And there wasn't a lot of jobs in natural resources, environmental sciences, uh, in Springfield, Illinois, that 
he could work in. So he ended up working in, in some, in some computer work and worked at the local gym and, and really just made the best of his time. But towards the end of my training, um, he really wanted to continue back on his career trajectory. So we kind of traded off. So I went to residency, the match tells you where you're going to go. He moved down there. Um, but then he wanted, he decided he wanted to get his PhD. And so I, I agreed that we would then move wherever he got his PhD at. And so that's what determined where we were going to go. Um, it was where his training was going to take us. So we moved up to Seattle because he decided to pursue his PhD at University of Washington. Now, um, you know, graduating residency, um, I had, you know, I'd been in Minnesota for a year, but I really hadn't lived, you know, much else. I'd been in central Illinois for so much of my life and Seattle would have been the farthest I would have been. And I was very unfamiliar with the city. So I was very hesitant to go work at a small price, small solo practice or at a small group practice because I just felt like I don't know who I'm going to end up working with and I'd heard some sort of quote-unquote horror stories about people going to practices and then you know having really not good experiences so I thought it would be a safer bet <laughs> if you're going to a, a city that was that's uncertain that's new to go to an, an organization or an institution or a multi-specialty clinic so that's how I decided to go you know, you know, between a small group versus a bigger clinic, I actually wanted to join academics. Um, I knew later in residency that I, I, I loved academics. I loved the challenging cases, um, the journal clubs, um, all the collaboration. But unfortunately, at the time, University of Washington was on a hiring freeze. So I couldn't actually be faculty then. So that's what took my path down the private practice route. And the, and the organization I picked my job with was uh, an organization that at the time I didn't recognize what I was doing was following my mission. Um, but one of the things that I loved in residency was taking care of patients who didn't have insurance and who had complex medical needs. And so the organization I joined was one that did charity care. And they would see a certain subset of their patients who did not have insurance and it would be charitable care. And I'm not sure how it was funded or anything, but um, that really resonated with me. And it was the only place I knew of that was doing that in Seattle. So that's, that's how I picked uh, starting my career out of that place. Wow. That's, uh, now, did you, you knew that beforehand? Mm -hmm. that, that sort of work? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. And I knew in residency, of course, we see patients regardless of their insurance status and Many of my closest patient interactions were with patients who had <coughs> um, socioeconomic factors that made their care more challenging. And, and that, to me, that was, I don't know, it was very fulfilling and, and I wanted to be able to continue that in practice. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to find that. I mean, it sounds like there were lots of moving targets with uh, both your career and your husband's and you know, mm -hmm. those family dynamics you're trying to prioritize uh, you know, taking care of each other while also taking care of your own career, trying to balance that. That's not easy. It, it's definitely not. It's like a dance kind of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad it sounds like it, uh, it settled on something that was good at the outset. Um, would you mind sharing some of the pros and cons of your employment from that time? Like from when you, when you finished training up until this past year? 
Yeah, definitely. This is this is the section that probably had the when as I was reviewing these questions and thinking about my thinking about my answers and making some notes for myself. This was the section that had the most amount of information, I think. Um, you know, the, the pros, I will say, leaving residency, um, you're, it's like you're a blank canvas. I mean, at least I felt that way. I felt like I had soaked up all the information, um, you know, passed my boards, or at least I, I guess at the time I, I felt like I passed my boards because um, I didn't know yet, right? Um, I felt very adequately trained. Um, I, I felt relatively confident. Um, so, you know, I felt like I was ready to go out into the world and I was open to soaking up experiences and, and really building on that. And I was excited about having my own patients and putting into practice the things I had learned. Um, and, and that was great, you know, to be able to go out and do that. And it was sort of exciting to be able to go to a new city and develop a new identity and do that. Um, because again, I had been a part of the medical school and then the residency program. So even though there's a lot of pros to doing that, I felt like, it would be nice to kind of break the mold and, and go somewhere else because I'd been there for eight years. But, um, you know, the cons, I mean, there it's been a challenge for sure. I, I think, um, you know, one thing that I'll say is that real life is, is more than our careers. It's more than our jobs. And what you don't necessarily learn in residency, which is really, really hard to teach, is how to integrate your real life with your career and then navigate circumstances when things don't turn out the way you planned or hoped for. Like, you know, you may have plans, like I'm gonna go into academics, or I'm gonna go sign with this practice, or I'm gonna go, you know, I'm gonna go specialize in this surgical, you know, surgical subspecialty, and then I'm gonna go see those patients. So that's great, you get your job, but then what, right? Because this is real life and you see real patients and you interact with real people and real administration and real leadership. And then you might have your family life at home. So how do you deal with real disappointment? How do you deal uh, with, with hurt? How do you deal with feelings of isolation, um, lack of support, not being heard, uh, maybe incidents of bias or, or microaggressions, um, or just generally feeling scared and uncertain? Like, did I make the right decision? Um, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, in the age of social media, like so many other things, people often post about the successes, you know, they post when they're happy, like all around the country, you know, my first job was very challenging and all around the country, I was seeing my colleagues on Facebook um, who graduated when I did talking about loving life as a dermatologist and this is amazing and I'm having so much fun and for me, it wasn't about the dermatology that wasn't fun. I love the dermatology, but my, my work, my, the circumstances of my employment and the, and the people and, and, the, and the, um, the, the job that I was in had a lot of other things that went along with it outside of just seeing the dermatology, the clinical dermatology. And I felt like, is it me? Is there something wrong with me? Because everywhere I'm just seeing my, my friends and colleagues post about all the good stuff they're having. And I felt like, I started to feel like there was something wrong with me. Like maybe I was the one who didn't belong. You know, maybe I don't belong in medicine. Maybe this is not the right field for me. Um, so I really, you know, I had to advocate for myself and go through some really tough times to find my place and to find my strengths and to realize that this is what's good about me. This is what I have to offer, um, that I'm valuable, that I belong here. Um, and residency is a bubble. You know, you're, 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 you have your, your microcosm of people around you, you have your supportive faculty, 
Um, you know, you don't have a lot of outside influences. You have a lot of protection, um, but the real world can be much harsher. Hmm. You know, and this was the first stage of my career was in private practice. And when we decided to move back to Illinois and join academics, um, that was sort of like the second stage of my career. And, um, you know, the pros of that was I was so excited to finally be doing the doing medicine in a way that I really wanted to do it, which was academic medicine. And I was excited to be back in my home program after being away, kind of showing them what I've learned and some of the real life skills that I've acquired these five years away, um, being with familiar people in a safe environment. Um, but, you know, there's challenges to academia too. Um, you know, academia is interesting because if you want to do academia, you will love academia. However, it's not without its, its, its difficulties because the thing with academia is that there is a lot of flexibility. Some, you know, oftentimes there is flexibility, but there's a lot of roles and responsibilities. And when you're early on, you wanna, you wanna get involved. You, you're interested in all of these things. You're excited, you're energetic. You wanna teach, you wanna lead, you wanna see patients, you wanna lead this initiative, you wanna join that committee. And then before you know it, you said yes to more things than you can possibly manage. And you think you're supposed to do this because you think, well, this is what's expected, or this is what I need for promotion, or I just really love all this stuff. I want to do it all. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing because you kind of get to learn what it is that you like and maybe don't like as much. And it's hard to do that unless you get involved. But um, it can really sneak up on you. The burnout can really sneak up on you. So, so... Sacharita, so far, I've heard two major things that were hurdles, if I, if I can interject. Um, and like I, in my mind, because, because of my own background in finance, I tend to put things in terms of equations. And so in my head with like employment, and if like assuming you're doing something that you enjoy, um, still after that, what it comes down to is you get money and in exchange you are giving your time and your stress and the degree to which you can control those two latter factors, the time and the stress is where real wealth resides. Mm. Like where, like, is the money, obviously, yeah, like you can make more money, you can make less money. That's sure. that, that changes too. But once that number is fixed with a job, the one in Seattle, it sounds to me like in that environment, maybe time wasn't the most difficult stress, but it was, it was stress itself. It was the dynamics within work. Right. And the, in the, it sounds like there was not a lot of control of that stress because like we can only control our own behavior, right? Like, right. We, and if like you mentioned things like dynamics or microaggressions, like that is not something that you can control. That is something right. that was done to you. Um, whereas in the academia, it sounds like it was more the other side. It was like, mm -hmm. you're so excited and you're like, you want to do these things, which is a good thing. But then all of a sudden control is lost of your time. Is that, yeah. am I understanding you correctly? I think, I think uh, it, it, as far as uh, the larger framework goes, absolutely. I think at least for me and how I experienced it, that would be a, an accurate categorization for sure. And um, you know, in, in private practice, um, one of the things that as an, you know, to your point about things being out of your control, um, 
I, I, and I was never comfortable with seeing patients every 10 to 15 minutes. And it's very common in dermatology to see 35 to 45 patients a day uh, and you see them quickly. And that was never something that felt, felt good to me or comfortable to me. And granted, there are things where they walk in and you're like, oh, that's a benign mole. That's not melanoma. You know, you're okay. Um, and so there are things that are quick, but um, many times for me, the magic of medicine was interacting with the patients and talking with them and getting to find out about not just their story um, for their medical problem, but the story of who they were. And um, you don't get to do that in five, 10 minute visit or even a 15 minute visit. And certainly not if they have complex problems, which is where my interest was. So um, I wanted to see fewer patients, but that wasn't my decision, right? So if I make less money, my organization makes less money. And nobody told me that, right? Nobody said when I was starting practice that, hey, guess what? It's not gonna be up to you how many patients you get to see, you know? Um, you know, if you're, if your practice wants you to see 30, 35, 40 patients and you want to see fewer, they may not be okay with that. Right. I didn't even know to ask about that. Um, I just, you just go in very, very naive thinking, well, I'll do what works or doesn't work. I'll just ask to do something else. And that's not how it works. <laughs> so if you, this is very interesting to me. So like, this is like, this sounds like something that if someone is coming close, like if they're, go, if they're in the job interview phase and this is important to them, mm-hmm. that they should ask prospective employers, do you think that that's a good idea? I tell all my graduating residents that, or I'm sorry, the ones who are looking for, when they get to where they're looking for a job, it's about their, you know, second year of resident, of Durham residency, where they start looking for jobs. I meet with them and I tell them, okay, you're going to Google and say, what should I ask in my job interview? And it's going to tell you about asking about the service region and asking about insurance panels. Okay, that's all fine and good. But what you need to ask is, how many patients do you expect me to see? If I wanna see fewer, is it gonna be okay? How many MIs am I get? Is it gonna take me six months to get that second MA? Or is it gonna take me five years and I have to be partnered to get that second MA? Because they'll just tell you, you'll get two MAs and it won't be until you find out there that actually you don't get two MAs now, you'll get it after you've been with us for two years. Um, you know, so they're not always, you know, transparent about those details. And, um, so I, I do, I tell them all, you have to ask those questions. And if people are waffling and they can't give you good answers, you know, you, ha- you have to really throw up some red flags. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like in an, in an employee scenario, <clears throat> like you're the employee or the, the graduating resident is fighting to be viewed as a human while the employer, hopefully they are not entirely viewing, viewing their employees as an asset, even though technically they do have as business owners, they have to think like, well, I'm hiring this person and I'm paying them this much and they have to see this many patients for this amount of time. Like there has to be some sort of middle ground there so that humanity is pre- preserved. Um, does, that, does that make sense? There, there absolutely should and I have been shocked at how little middle ground there is. And there's a couple of things. Number one, a lot of practices are out of the control of practices anymore. They're in the control of either multi-specialty organizations, the corporate organizations, private equity groups. Um, And so that of course 
you know, adds that corporate element to medicine and that business element to medicine. Um, so there's that part of it. But then the other part is, is within my specialty of dermatology and I can't speak to any other specialty, but it's been done a certain way for so long. And, 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 the, and my answer to anyone who says, this is how we do it, um, is, is so what, if it's not working, we've got to change it. And this is how you've done something for so long, of course, is a surefire way to continue to, you know, continue to fail, um, you know, correcting ourselves for whatever that may be. And in dermatology, it, it's the standard, it's the norm to see patients, you know, every five to 10 minutes in private practice or to see patients, you know, you know, see that a high volume. And it used to be much worse. It used to be like, you know, 50, 60, 70 patients a day. Uh, some some der- or old school dermatologists would see, you know, 70, 80. I've even heard up to 100 patients a day um, with some really old school dermatologists out there. How is that and even possible? It's, you know, it's not, right? You walk in and you look at something and then you give a diagnosis and then maybe your staff educates them a little bit, but that's it. And medicine has changed in some ways, uh, you know, for the better and that patients are more aware that yeah, this is not, I'm not getting what I need here, right? Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, and they're advocating for themselves, but they shouldn't have to advocate for themselves, you know? And so that's our job is to advocate for them. And so now with, with more recent graduates, I think you're seeing the trend shift a little bit where recent grads are like, wait, no, I don't want to see. And I think some of it maybe is generational with, you know, Physicians now um, of a younger generation wanting more work-life balance and saying, if I have to see 40 patients a day, that means I have to do 40 charts a day. And I want to be able to have a life and raise family or travel, you know? So I think that the culture is changing in that way. Um, but for our, my specialty, when I started working, I was the outlier. So every, because everyone else around, around me was seeing that many patients, when I threw up my hand, I was like, wait a minute, this is too much. It was like, well, it must be you. You must not be prepared for practice. And I actually had the C, uh, the C, the medical director of of what of my first job tell me, I'm not sure you're prepared to start working. You may want to think about getting more training if you can't see this many patients. Um, I'll never forget that could that conversation in my office. And um, you know, so it's it's experiences like that that make you feel like yeah, I guess it is me, right? Maybe I am inadequate. And um, I know that's not the case now, but when you're early on, you don't know, <laughs> you know, you don't know if it's you or if it's, if it's your organization. So if the status quo is dictating the standard around you and you're the outlier, you're the one who's going to go through some very difficult times. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of that must have been tough, and and uh, and continues to be in many cases. And if you stand up for work-life balance and nobody else does, you appear to be unbalanced, mm-hmm. or, which is yeah. So that's yeah that that's a tough thing to overcome. Wow. So this sounds like like it sounds like this is a like an example at least of like a thing in your career that made you realize that you needed to make some changes for your own, for your own sake. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my career had two, obviously two main phases, as you've heard, private practice and academia. And, you know, I knew 
making the change from private practice to academia and moving back to Springfield was a, a fairly easy one because the the work component of it, I knew that I was, I felt like I was missing out on a lot of things, um, you know, all the things about academia, challenging cases, collegiality, et cetera. And I knew that if I wanted to serve my patients the best way, I would, I, I wanted to serve them more than just seeing them every 10 to 15 minutes. And that wasn't the type of care delivery that I could do best that I felt would honor my practice style. Um, I absolutely don't judge any of my colleagues who see patients that frequently um, who feel, you know, who feel they can do it well and, and stay true to their patient care values and who's in the patient servicing care. That's, that's, that's fantastic, but it's not, how, it's not what worked for me. Um, so making the switch was easy and, and life-wise we had a daughter and we wanted to move back near my family. So that, that was sort of an, an easy one, but you know, this changes that I've had to make since being in academic academia, the little pivots have been, have been much harder because once you find yourself in a place where you're like, okay, this is my place. These are my people. Um, and then you start to encounter some struggle or, or, you know, uh, you know, things that challenge your bandwidth it becomes a lot harder than to say no, because you care about the people you work with. You care about the mission of the place. You identify with the values and those challenges, um, those challenges can be really hard, but you know, the, the role that I recently you know, made a switch with was giving up one of my big leadership roles, which was vice chair of health equity for mm -hmm. our department. And I hold two, I held two big leadership hats. One is a program director for my residency program in dermatology. And the other one is vice chair of health equity for our department of internal medicine, of which my dermatology division is, is part of. And, um, I felt very challenged in trying to maintain these two di different leadership roles. And um, I'll tell you some of the things uh, that sort of got me to realize I need to make a change was feeling like I didn't want to do medicine anymore, or I was feeling like I was suffocating, like I was drowning, like I couldn't get air. Now, those are the analogies I use. I felt very, very constrained. And I felt like I was missing out on life, you know, missing out on experiences with my family and friends living from deadline to deadline um, and not having time for organization, for creativity, for deep thought. It was just deadline, 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 deadline. And I was spending less and less time with my family. I was snapping at my kids. My health was suffering. I was gaining weight. My blood pressure was elevated. I'm sleeping poorly, chronically fatigued. I mean, in every way, my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health was suffering and my bandwidth felt like it was going to snap. And that's when I knew, like, if it means leaving my career, something's got to change. Something's got to give. Yeah, that, uh, <clears throat> thank you for sharing that. That, uh, when it's, you know, it, things start to fall apart, like, <laughs> subtly at first, but then it grows and it becomes more and more glaring. Um, and I, I appreciate that you are making the distinction that you're not just like, oh, well, a certain level of activity at work or demand on yourself, there isn't like a rule that applies to everybody. Mm -hmm. Listen, it sounds like you're saying that you know, like learning your own limitations, mm -hmm. demonstrating modesty is really hard in medicine because that tendency is that everything should be the same or everyone yeah. should be the same. Is that true? Yep. 
Yeah, I think there's a, well, I think number one, there's a lot of comparison, um, especially with social media and sharing, um, here's the publications I published, here's the talks I've done, um, here's the curriculum I wrote, um, or in private practice, you know, here's the practice I built, here's the vacations my family were taking, here's the, you know, vacation house in Napa that we have, you know, whatever it is, I think there's a lot of comparisons uh, that we make and physicians have been selected out for their perfectionistic tendencies, right? We have selected out for stress. Uh, we have been rewarded for stress, right? We have been rewarded all along for, for performance and for perfection and for stress. So it's no surprise that you get to this part of your career and it's hard to stop. It's hard to really recognize it. Wait a minute, this, this is not serving my body, my soul, my mind, my heart, my family, or me well. Um, and that, that is going to look different for different people. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's your personal radar that's different or your life circumstances are different, it's going to be very different. Um, but when you look around you and, and what you see is what you're seeing on social media or what's being shared with you, you start to lose sight of your internal radar. What's here? What's here, right? Those voices in your heart and mind, they're telling you something's not right. When you start to look around and compare, you lose, you know, you lose that, you lose hearing yourself. And, and that's why I think it's so important to have time for deep thought and for reflection, because that's how you get to, you get to listen to your own truth. And I really had to shut that all out, shut out all the noise to be able to really hear what it was that my body was telling me. Mm. So these, these things that you let go with work, mm -hmm. before you did that, what did you need to, like, how, how did you, like, okay, let me back up. In my head, I see a, like, like uh, business relationship, dynamics, you know, between you and the, your colleagues that you had to address, um, managing, not just like the before, like how to tell them or how to like communicate it so that things would be okay. But also after the fact, like being able to make sure that it was a sustainable situation and that there wouldn't like create bitterness and things like that. And then the other aspect would be like financially for you, because obviously like if there is if you're letting something go, yep. did you have to prepare for a pay cut? Um, like what sort of things did you have to educate yourself on or prepare for before this transition could be realized? That is a great question. I, yeah, so the first thing I would say is feeling confident in your own decision. Like, because some of the other, the other stuff about like the fallout or how to do this, uh, this make this choice or how to manage the finances from it. That stuff is all very important, but I think it can, at least for me, it can kind of, it's, it might be part of the decision-making process for some and a very real big part of it. For me, I felt like thinking about all that was clouding my ability to make the decision that was best for me. So I had to, for me, I had to separate that and say, okay, not thinking about the finances, not thinking about how my, you know, how my boss is going to feel about me stepping out of this role or how, the, how hard it's gonna to be to tell him about stepping out of this role. What is it that I need to do? So one of the things that um, I got help with in making this decision was a, a mentor of mine suggested that I speak with one of our physician coaches here at our institution. Now this physician coach is no ordinary coach. He is, um, 
he is a, he's a retired surgeon. He is the director, executive director of physician coaching in our Center for Human and Organizational Potential. Potential, And he is the wisest man I know. I mean, this man is like a saint. It's, he's like a walking blessing on earth. And uh, his name is, uh, is, is Dr. John Mellinger. And um, he is sadly retiring at the end of this calendar year. But um, he, he I, I spent several sessions talking with him and sharing my journey and my story. And he really guided me to be able to listen to myself, to learn, to decide on what it is that I need to do. And so once I made that decision with that guidance and support, and he never told me what to do ever in any of our sessions, but I think he helped me reflect and get that deep thought to, to really get clarity. And once I had that clarity, then, you know, my husband and I had a conversation, you know, what are we going to do about the stipend money that I lose or, you know, how is, how am I going to convey this information? And, and it's not, again, it's not about anyone else, but, but me, it's about, how, what I need to do to flourish in my career. And so how can I convey that in a manner that's respectful and that's, that's, that's you know, it, it definitely takes into account the people that are impacted by my role and the projects that I have going on. Um, and, I, and I really thought about it and took my time with it. And I had a face-to-face conversation with my, with my superior. And, um, and then I, I crafted a plan for how I thought, you know, the transition could go. Not all of that has gone the way I've hoped it would go um, because there are, you know, there's more than one person in this, in this transaction, as, as you call it. And um, sometimes how you hope people respond isn't always the way that they will respond. Um, and so there can be some unexpected challenges, I think, that, that come. And, and um, but I think I've had to stay grounded in the fact that, um, those challenges will get resolved and figured out, but what has to happen for me is what I already had gotten clarity on and just really stay firm with that. Um, now I'm in a, in a privileged position where I have a, a, a academic salary and I get, you know, I have a, I, I do get some, some money from my RVUs. And so financially we, we, we could make it work letting go of this role. But you know, I, I honor the fact that that's not always the case for, for everybody and career decisions can often be, um, even when you know that you, you, you don't want to stay in something or you can't stay in something or it's too toxic, sometimes people have to stay in those roles because they don't have another option and, and they have to make sure that they can pay their bills and take care of their family. And um, so it's, it's very challenging and I, I, um, I can appreciate those challenges. Yeah. Yeah, that, I can see where, like anytime you make that sort of an internal transition and you're gonna be working in with the same people or a lot of the same people that you were before, like you have to keep fighting for, to stand that ground. Mm-hmm. Like um, I, I've, seen, I've, seen, I've seen so many, physicians comment on the fact that even after they set, they like, they like draw a line in the sand and be like, this is as far as I go, that they're continually asked to step over it again and again. Uh-huh. And Absolutely. So you, that confidence in the decision and knowing your limitations, knowing what is ultimately going to lead to harm for yourself and for anyone around you, mm-hmm. you have to be confident in those 
limits. Um, yes. And that's hard. And like, and like not, not even to mention the, the many who are in a situation that is untenable, but they can't do anything about it right now. Um, when like before you were able to like, before you were able to take the steps to like make some tangible changes, um, did you find that there were ways to like with, you know, with, uh, with family or with colleagues where there trusted people that could help to like relieve that stress side of things for you? hundred percent. Um, and even the, the, both leading up to the, the decision, uh, as well as the decision itself, I, very little of what I can do or what many of us can do can, can happen alone. Um, and, um, I, I couldn't, I don't, I couldn't have made the best decision for me without the support of my, my, my people. Um, my spouse is, is at the top of that list. Um, my sister, who I often talk about with professional challenges, my, my, my division chief here, who was my program director when I was a resident and who's our division chief. And she's a, a dear friend, um, and colleague, um, her, her, um, advice and guidance and support. Some, some of the people at the medical school, my coach, Dr. Mellinger, I mean, the, the list is on and on my parents who, who my, my dad, who I often bounce these things off of and who retired after a long career, uh, in, in, um, in engineering, you know, I, and, and the, the people that support you come from so many different walks of life. Like, you know, I talk to friends who aren't in medicine and the challenges they go through other moms who are navigating, you know, working out of the home or working from home all of these people, um, you know, I talk to, you know, all throughout these, throughout this experience. And who said, you know what, not, we have full, we support you no matter how hard it is. And we can't relieve your struggles always, but we will help you. We will guide you. You can call and vent to us, uh, you know, and I did, I've done all those things, you know, and then, and ultimately when it came time to make the right decision, consulting those, those trusted people was a big part, if not all in feeling confident in my decision. Yeah, that's, that's great that you sought those out, those people out. And so, you know, that, and that, that picture looks different for every, every person too. Mm -hmm. um, we all have different, different, you know, whether it's family members or close friends or colleagues. And so um, it's, it's good that you were able to, to pull from those people during that time. Um, so it sounds, do you, do you feel like it's been worthwhile then? I mean, it seems like that's an obvious question, but <laughs> this, this transition, it sounds like it's been very good for you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I, um, a hundred percent, uh, worth, worth it, uh, worth the decision, uh, that I came to, um, both the earlier one of switching, uh, from, you know, careers from private practice to academia, um, despite the increase in, in time, um, responsibilities that I've had. Um, but then also this most recent decision, which was one of the, actually the, it seems like a small one, but it was probably actually was the hardest professional decision I have ever had to make. Um, as much of that because of the circumstances surrounding this role, but it was worthwhile because, um, you know, I'm the one who I have to be the most accountable to. So, you know, making this decision, uh, which I knew was the best one for me, um, has allowed me to feel comfortable with the fact that I was true to myself, 
you know, that I, you know, I had integrity in, in my actions, that I did it well, that I did it, you know, respectfully and thoughtfully, and that I made a decision in line with my values, my purpose, my truths. And, and because of all that, even though there were some challenges around the actual, you know, the actual decision when it came time to do it and the conversations and some of the things that came afterwards, despite that, I have felt elevated since that time. I have felt more empowered. I felt energized. I feel more motivated. I feel more hopeful. And like, it's not just me that benefits from that. It's all the people that I affect. So it's my kids, my husband, my patients, my students, my residents, all the people that I interact with in my professional life, they all benefit from that too, right? Because they all get the, they all get the negative effects when my bandwidth is stretched and breaking. They all get the, the, the ill effects of that. So it's a, it was hundred percent worthwhile. That's great. I'm, I'm happy that you've been able to take the steps to, to reach that and to see the benefits of it. Um, so thank, thank you so much for sharing. It's been really great to talk to you about all these things. Um, do you have any, like, if you, if you have any, like maybe one or two major points of advice um, for students and residents as they consider their own career paths, um, would you mind sharing? I, I, I'll be happy to. And I, 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 this is one that I'm gonna make sure that I look at my notes at when I talk to you because um, to me, this was the part, the part of your questions that really, um, that really you know, landed hard on me. Um, so first of all, um, listen to yourself, always. Don't ignore that voice inside you. And Dr. Mellinger, you know, I'll share with you the, the three things he told me. Number one, answer the question of who are you most accountable to, whoever that may be, whether it's yourself, your family, your God, whatever that may be, know who you're most accountable to. Number two, how do you want to write your story? And this is advice that he gave me. So I'm directly quoting, or at least paraphrasing from, from him. And this is what helped me make my decision. Um, he told me, you know, how, how, how do you want to tell your story, whether it's to your children later in life or to others if you write about it or to yourself as you write about in your journal, how do you wanna tell that story? And then third is he talked to me about a book called The Multipliers. And in this book, the author refers to people who, when they are around you, you feel elevated, you feel energized, you feel like you are, your life is multiplying. And I, I, I haven't read the book, so I could be getting this wrong, but the general gist of what he told me is this. And he said that the author writes about about people who I think might be called detractors, um, but people who, when you're around them, they may they may take from you and your energy may be drained. And the key is to not have detractors have control of your decisions. They will be there and you will interact with them, but to not let them have control over your decision-making. Um, the next thing is to not be afraid to ask for help. I cannot emphasize this enough. We cannot and do not, we cannot and should not do this work alone. We are better together. Right? We need to use our experiences to help each other. And there's a saying of, you know, lift as you rise. So as you get that help, um, you know, use that to help others and lift them along with you too. And use your experiences and your setbacks as these golden words of wisdom. And, and I like to call failure as a sort of gift that keeps on giving. Like you feel like it's a bad thing, but then you learn so much from it and you can use that wisdom to help other people. And lean on the people who've been there for you and, and don't limit where you look for these people. I just had a call from a community member who uh, was the state board, uh, the, the, the 
the president, the chair uh, of the local chapter of the NAACP and the state, the state chapter of the NAACP. And she had some amazing words of wisdom for me last night. And I wasn't even expecting a phone call from her. And, um, you know, she doesn't work here at SIU and she's not a physician, but her words of wisdom just, you know, I, I heard them hard. And so um, not being, not limiting yourself into who those people may be. Um, don't be afraid of failure and setbacks. You know, our life is a compendium of experiences, right? It's this evolving story that we're writing. It's not just this checklist of goals. Um, and so those reroutes in your journey, those failures, those setbacks, call it what you will, they add so much richness to, our, richness to our lives. And it doesn't feel like in the moment because it's painful and it hurts and I get it because I've been there. Um, but when I look back on what I have learned through those experiences, it's I would never have anticipated that I could have gotten so much from such difficult, from such difficult experiences. And then lastly, um, to know that, you know, as far as our career paths go, that we change, we grow, we are not the same people we were yesterday. And it's okay to have your career path change from what you thought it was going to be at the beginning of your journey, or even yesterday. Um, because, you know, our success isn't defined by what we've achieved, but it's how fulfilled we are in our purpose. And that's going to look different as our story evolves. Wow. Thank you, Sacharita. That, your thoughts are of great value. I'm really appreciative that you were willing to spend some time uh, to share. And uh, I know many people who will listen to this will, uh, will be thinking the same thing. So thanks a lot for taking some time with me today. Thank you so much. It was truly my honor. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, of course. Well, that's our episode for Money Mediator. If you want to uh, follow up with any questions, best way to find me is on Twitter. My handle is at O-L-S-O-N-P-L-A-N-N-E-R. That's Olson Planner. Thanks for listening.